Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Yes, that's right. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1. It's your local community radio station. My name's Andy and I will be hanging out with you on the airwaves for the next hour. Um, I'm coming to you this week from Banjimar Country in northwestern Australia, Pilbara region. I'll tell you what, there is some pretty spectacular um, country in this part of the world. Um, and acknowledging traditional owners here and, of course, the Jagger and Turrbal people in Brisbane where this is being broadcast. I have been trekking around Western Australia for the last couple of months and while I was in Perth, I happened to sit down for a chat with a friend of mine, Ray Grenfell. Now, Ray has been part of making Radical Community Radio for a long time on the Indie Media Show on RTRFM and we share content sometimes and I did hear one of the Indie Media announcers talk about Paradigm Shift as a sister show to Indie Media, and I'm happy to take that um, label. Uh, both RTR is a great station, and Indie Media is a great show. But Ray doesn't just host a community radio show. He is studying a PhD in how social media affects um, social movements, particularly radical anarchist social movements around the world and in Australia. He's done a lot of study in Indonesia in particular. And he's also somebody who is interested in creating radical social centers. Part of his study is about the praxis of creating these kind of anarchist social centers. And he is in the process of trying to pull one together in Fremantle. And so it was great to sit down and talk with Ray. We had a a nice long chat, which you will get to Um, eavesdrop on over the next hour Um, because I share a lot of those interests as well um, and I think it's really worthwhile to unpack you know um, the moment that we're in politically and socially and what are the factors that influence it how does social media play a role in this Um, is this good or bad what can we do and so I think it's good to have an in-depth conversation but also good um, I enjoyed it a lot because me and Ray, we're similar ages, we come from similar sort of politics, and um, I guess we've seen changes in radical politics, and it's nice to sort of sit down and talk about some of these things as well. And so, um, it's a, a long and winding chat, we cover a lot of ground, but basically, 
um, a bit of the history of how activist groups have used the internet, a bit of how um, social media has changed that in recent years, or platform capitalism as a another title for it, and then a bit of how some of the practices that we think can um, can help us to deal with this and help um, help us make sure that our movements are resisting uh, oppression and exploitation in all its forms and not playing into the hands of big tech um, who have so adeptly co-opted so many parts of human uh, communication and behavior. So anyway, that is what's coming up. Stick around and let's get into it. My name is Raymond Grenfell. I uh, present and produce the Indie Media Show in Perth and I've been involved in a bunch of, I guess, activist things over the years. Um, and I'm currently a PhD candidate at Curtin, looking at the impacts of platform capitalism on autonomous uh, communities. Yeah, and it's a very interesting topic, mm-hmm. and one that probably isn't studied very much. So, I mean, let's expand a bit on your mm-hmm. PhD topic. Do you want to tell us, I mean, how you got into it, what, um, what kind of things you're covering? Uh, so, ostensibly, because over the last oh, more than 20 years, I've been involved with indie media, and primarily a bit like yourself, Andy, I've been a bit of a, a media activist, uh, a term that I never used to like, but I guess I'm slowly warming to. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been interested in, like, I guess, the role of uh, citizen journalism, media activism, and its relationship to social movements. Um, so initially, you know, I did my master's project on looking at like the history of indie media, um, and open publishing and I guess looking at like how our relationship as, as activists and social movements, how our relationship to both, I guess, media, corporate media, um, but also to online media, how it's changed and transformed. And then my PhD project really kind of evolved out of that as I started investigating, I guess, platform capitalism or surveillance capitalism. I guess I'm also, I've always been quite uh, cynical and, you know, suspicious of online activism and of corporate social media and, you know, the role it's playing, not just in social movements, but in our lives and how much it's come to mediate our social relationships. So I guess, you know, it's come from a, a place of, I guess, wanting to investigate how these platforms and tools impact us and, you know, perhaps how we can better navigate them. Mm. Well, I'm with you on that one as somebody who's, yeah, quite critical of social media and that's right, platform capitalism is a good way of talking about it because it it's not the social that's the problem or the media, it's the control of it. But before we get into that, um, indie media, I guess these days a lot of people involved in activism have no recollection of indie media. Yeah. So do you want to tell us what it was? Yeah, I think I think it's a good it's a good starting point because, and I think you know you have to it has to all be prefaced with an understanding of the role of media in in terms of you know society and in terms of sort of ideas of social progression. If you, if for you know for the more like liberal theorists, and I think you know this idea that the media in, say, in the 1990s and so forth, um, and even today, uh, you know, we live in a world of kind of corporate monopolies. And that's, you know, but initially the printing press and media was kind of heralded as a, a tool of democratization 
So if you sort of if you go back, you know, to the the initial sort of proliferation of the printing press, then I guess you see that it was really, you know, for many people a positive thing. Like suddenly, you know, knowledge became more accessible and the ability to create knowledge became more accessible. And so, you know, ideologically it was a very useful tool to have a printing press and to have access to media. But yeah, if you fast forward to sort of the eighties and nineties, we had, you know, that that media and, and you know print media, television media, radio media, broadcast uh, media in general, um, is very much centralised and controlled by monopolies and, and the corporates, who of course perpetuate the same ideologies of of those in power. So indie media is sort of you know born in that context of this sort of you know complete corporate control of the media. Along comes the internet. For a lot of people at the time, and we're talking in sort of the, the late 1990s, the internet was seen to be another kind of force or wave of democratization, where suddenly people had access to this tool where they could get information and is, you know, it's meant to be, bring about this, uh, you know, this wave of, of sort of democracy and therefore help all these social movements. And so Indie Media itself was born um, during the, the Seattle demonstrations in 1999 against the WTO. Um, and that's at a time, um, I can get into it, but that's in, at a time of like, I guess the height of like the alter globalization or, you know, some people call it or the anti-globalization movements. Um, so a whole bunch of activists involved in workers' rights, women's rights, indigenous rights, you know, converged in Seattle to demonstrate against the WTO and activists, primarily anarchists and hackers and, and journalists, sick of the fact that you know, this corporate uh, control of media and the, the control of the narrative around activism and particularly more radical politics, sick of all that, sick of the way they're portrayed at demonstrations, decided, well, look, we should develop some tools using the internet to be able to, I guess, tell our own stories. Um, and so with the assistance of people like, uh, you know, Predator from the Catalyst Collective and, and others um, in, in Australia, who happened to be over there, uh, they developed uh, the first indie media website was an open publishing website. Um, and so this is all prior to Web 2.0. So there's no such thing as blogs or social media. So the internet, as you know, anyone who's old enough might remember, was a very static thing. You know, you could, you could build websites to some extent, but there was no ability for people to really engage um, or participate online. And so indie media, similar to Wikipedia that popped up at the same time, they, they were some of the first websites to utilize this concept of open publishing where anyone could come along and comment. Um, but also, the, you know, the code and the actual infrastructure was built and controlled by the people in indie media, the people that used it. So they built the, uh, the indie media, first indie media website for Seattle and it was a huge success, receiving nearly uh, you know, a million hits every day. Um, during the demonstrations in fact you know the corporate media were like constantly relying on indie media for the stories so it was a big success and after seattle indie media just kind of took off from there and expanded first of course through the united states but then you know internationally to the point where i think there was you know over 300 independent media centers around the world all of them with their own online open publishing website but then also other projects like video projects and print projects and radio projects and so forth so Hopefully that explains mm. <laughs> the birth of indie media. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting because I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how can we 
use the good things of social media, mm. that democratization, the ability to share information, mm. share campaigns and what's going on, connecting people without like just this weird intrusion into people's lives. It's weird, the domination of the algorithm, mm. you know, as it's called. And, and what I come around to is a model that looks something like indie media, mm. you know, where people can submit things as a kind of collective that yeah. runs it and whatever, and it's our way of sharing information. But then it's like, that already existed, and it totally got killed off by mm. social media. Virtually as soon as social media started, indie yeah. media started to die, hey? Yeah, totally. And it's, it's, it's complex. I mean, I guess firstly, I think it's, you know, it's significant to talk about the differences between, say, like indie media, Wikipedia, these like earlier projects, you know, some of them obviously that are uh, still ongoing, and social media, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, they're very, very different in the sense that indie media, and you said it before, they were collectives. While indie media was an online phenomenon, it was based in physical organizing. And it was also the people involved were prim- primarily interested not only in creating a platform for citizen journalism and activist media, but they were interested in creating, um, I guess, you know, what's considered to be sort of counter hegemonic institutions. So the collectives that run independent media centers, they were like, uh, more of a focus on direct democracy or consensus or, you know, I guess, you know, autonomy and autonomous politics. And, and you know, as much as it was about, like, you know, people contributing online and publishing and commenting and so forth, it was often really based around the independent media centres. Um, and these centres themselves, you know, historically have always been, you know, as important, I guess, as the online um, website to a large extent. You know, so much so that, you know, as some listeners may recall, uh, the demonstrations in Genoa a year after Seattle, the independent media center there was brutally raided by the police. I mean, there was films and documentaries about it where there was so much a threat in Genoa, you know, the independent media activists, um, that the police raided them, you know, nearly killed, uh, you know, a few people, ended up imprisoning a bunch of activists who were then disappeared and spent, you know, a, a long periods in time and incarceration and being tortured and so forth. So, you know, the spaces and not only at times of, of uh, convergences like like Seattle or Genoa or I guess here we had S11 in Melbourne around this period of, of, of history, but those spaces, you know, were almost sort of social centres in themselves and they were really important in terms of bringing people together. If you, you know, if you went to a new city, you know, thinking about when I was first getting involved in activism in the early 2000s, you go to a new city you'd often try and find where like the indie media space was, you know, it might be a part of another activist collective or space and you'd go there and that would be your kind of in to find out what things are happening, you know, and you, and you could often find out about that via the website or via the space, but the two things were so interconnected, you know, there wasn't really any independent media centers around the world that didn't have a physical presence and a physical collective, you know, they're all collectively run. You know, in, com- in comparison to that, what we have of uh, platform capitalism or corporate social media and the sort of, the interconnected network of platforms is we're all atomized individuals engaging with this sort of Starbucks-like corporate platform. And so it's it's a totally different experience. You're just an individual on there arguing with other individuals in this kind of spectacle of online kind of noise. And there's no, there's no physicality to it. There's no real relationship. So I think it's a totally different thing. But yeah, I think, you know, like how and why indie media disappeared is, you know, interconnected with the whole nature of political development through the you know 2000s but i guess one explanation perhaps is like the technology and the fact that indie media didn't really keep up with web 2.0 um you know the websites 
some people sort of argue now the websites became kind of clunky and difficult to use but i think it's i personally think it's more sociological i think it's more just the fact that we've seen just the social movements kind of die off we've also seen really the victory of neoliberalism and hyper individualized atomized lives take over from collective struggle and that's reflective even in social movements themselves you know at the time of the early 2000s there was this real idea of the multitude as um as some people refer to it you know like different people coming together for one common cause now we you know our campaign groups and our social movements are all much more focused on you know just individual issues um but yeah there's a lot there to unpack but it's i think it's um it's not as simple as to say that indie media wasn't technologically as savvy as the the new stuff that you know happened with web 2.0 um or just didn't keep up i think it's also just reflective more broadly of our sort of our social re- our changing social reality yeah, yeah it's a interesting topic but one totally for another time about yeah. what happened to the ultra globalization movement yeah, yeah. because it, um it was such a inspiring kind of politics that mm. sort of yeah seemed to come to an end replaced by a much more individualized kind of politics but anyway we'll we'll leave that i think one of the things that's interesting about what you're studying is you know maybe not as much as there should be but there is some study about how social media affects mm. individuals and uh, lies communities, you know, a lot of talk about the divisions in society and things like that. Mm. But the counterculture, as we once knew it, you know, has also been very much swallowed up into social media. Mm. And so many things, even like I'm here in Perth in a new city, and it's like, what happened to the street press? Remember, yeah. you get a street press, like, what's happening? <laughs> and these institutions of uh, alternative culture that existed that have sort of been are swallowed up into this mega, mega capitalist, like, mm. biggest corporations in the world. That's a really um, interesting thing to study, especially for those of us interested in creating a better world. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, like, I mean, because my, my research more specifically looks at autonomous or activist communities, but, you know, I also, you know, play in bands and I'm, I'm kind of involved in those kind of scenes, so you see that, that, that impact. But I think it's just it's happened so quickly that none of us really realise how significant it is and I think one of the real sort of um, I guess telling aspects of that is just you know it doesn't seem that long ago like even 10 years ago that I would go to gigs for instance and just hand out flyers and you'd build those sort of relationships with people and you'd you know it was all again there was a there's a physicality to your community and now everything you know like when you put on a gig it's just a Facebook event or you know maybe you put up a sponsored post on Instagram or something but I, I think all of us, you know, maybe we're subconsciously aware of it, but we're not entirely aware of how much these platforms are mediating our lives. And then with that, there comes the sort of, you know, the changing economic reality that has occurred, you know, sort of surreptitiously. The fact that, you know, data is now the largest commodity in the world and the big tech companies are, you know, they're the oil barons and they're the rubber barons of, of the 21st century um, and just how influential and, and significant and important those companies are and how much control and power they have. Um, but I, I think it's just, it's kind of terrifying just because everyone I think is aware of just how nuts it is. You know, just that example of people, just two people sitting in a room chatting to each other on their phone, basically, it's just sort of common now. And just even how the effects it's had on our language and our psychology and, and culture and, and yeah, and counterculture as well, because now everything is just on a, on a platform and you know like you go to a show and people are just filming things and it's almost a whole relationship 
with reality is changing. Our relationship mm. to meaning is changing. You know, previously and historically, um, you know, the role of media is typically more. It's a reflection, like any art, it's a reflection of of culture to some extent, and it's a feedback loop. So you know, things will films will be released, and then you know, we sort of reference them and so forth. But I think now, like actually, you know, you have this phenomenon now where things happen in real life, and we they we're reminded of things we've consumed via screens. And, I think, and you know, that seems really stupid and whatever, but, like, it happens all the time. Like, people will be having a normal conversation and they'll be like, oh, that's just, like, in that TV series or on that video or on that thing I saw on TikTok or whatever. So, you know, if, you know, our understanding of media was driven primarily by our physical experience in the world, if that's changed, that has a lot of... Um, significance if if it's even if it hasn't totally flipped but if now our lived experience is being largely determined by our experiences on screens well that you know it's quite terrifying in a way and it has you know certain um, ramifications you know both psychological political social ramifications Mm. it's very uh Guy Debord, Society yeah. of the Spectacle, yeah. you know, all it was once directly experienced becomes mediated. Mm-hmm. But then you think, well, that text was actually written in the 50s, right? And it's <laughs> and so, you know, this process has been going on, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, um, following from Debord, I mean, people like Baudrillard uh, wrote about this of Simulcra and Simulation. And I, yeah, and I, but I, I don't think even Baudrillard could envisage what we have today because it is it is like a you know a borderline nightmare in that sense that you know now the things we, we things we experience in real life are very much just replications of things we've experienced via screens and i think i don't know like a lot of people say well you know so so what you know like reality is subjective anyway you know like what what does it matter but i think the the main issue of all of this is that there are certain parameters to platforms and there's a certain logic to those platforms and it's a neoliberal capitalist logic. So, you know, there's a logic, there's a reality to the physicality of it. It's a screen, it's a flattened 2D experience. So it doesn't matter what it is, if it's just text and images, um, there's a, a sort of process in which everything becomes flattened. So the mediocre becomes important, the important becomes mediocre because your physical experience of it is just text and images. So that's, you know, that's one element of it. But there's also, yeah, the, the sort of the economic and social logic of these of these platforms that are all for profit platforms that are all showing you things to encourage you to spend more time on them, to buy things, to interact with certain people. Um, all these platforms have admitted that they do, you know, impact, you know, and, and manipulate the algorithms um, to make you see what you want to see. I mean, there's so many, and these are even just common, it's common knowledge now that people know that you talk around your phone and then the advertisement comes up or you know, you're talking about a person and you see more of that person and so, you know, our phone's constantly listening to us, constantly monitoring us. There's all the issues of surveillance, control, um, what's particularly relevant for, I guess, people involved in social movements or for activists. But yeah, I think it, it, it's it's the complexities of, and the problems around it are, are, so, are so much that I think it's kind of hard for us to grasp and hard for us to even understand what's happening and, and what impact it's having, not just on our sociality but also on our psychology as well yeah and i think to bring it back again to radical politics which is about um expressing possibilities right mm. and trying to convince people of future possibilities that are different to our current lived reality and in the 
in the physical world, in a world of yeah, physical interactions, you're bound by physical laws right? yeah, yeah. Um, that govern us. And there's other things, you know, that dictate our behavior, but um, it's sort of limited in that way. Um, and in a way, online communication, you're not limited by physical realities, yeah. either in distance to communicate or speed to communicate, mm-hmm. or even in notions of identity. Like, you know, people mm-hmm. take on these online identities beyond like your, what your physical reality is, and that's changes. Um, and so in a way, you can think, oh, you're more free, except now you're bound by, mm-hmm. you know, these rules dictated by the people who made the platform. Mm-hmm. And no longer are the, do we even know what the physical laws are that are governing us? Mm-hmm. We're bound by these kind of secret laws put down by people who are profiting off the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Those differences in terms of, you know, physical space and online space are really significant and important. And I think, if anything, that's what people should really be thinking about because you're right, like there is this illusion that you can be and do whatever you want online, but it's not real and there's no, and it's also within those parameters. I'm still engaging in this corporate platform that's ultimately just profiting off my, you know, my use of it. Um, and, and where's the actual, where's the meaning, where's the significant relationship? And it's just, it's just, you know, it's a big sort of virtual reality in which I'm still just sitting in my room in Hamilton Hill, you know, like what's, what's, and and I think the other significant thing is, and we've seen this with like the real, um, renewed, um, interest in like far right ideas and the alt right. And I think it's not a surprise that those kind of ideologies of, you know, um, sort of ethnic nationalism and uh, neo-Nazism and so forth, that they thrive in the online world because of the parameters of platform capitalism are hyper-individualized and atomized. You can be and do and say whatever you want without any responsibility or accountability or consequence. Um, There's no need to really collectively work together with anyone. Um, And you can have a lot of, I guess, impact in terms of, you know, as much impact as any online reality is or has just as an individual. Even the, the like the tendency towards conspiracy and the, like there's this reality on in platform capitalism that all opinions are equal in a way, so anyone can say anything. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no, it's not based in historical material reality or fact. You know, like anyone can comment on anything, and it's like, well, that's that's their opinion, and that's that's what matters. And it's like, well, that's not what actually shapes political history. And that you know, there, we have a we live in a material world still. And, um, you know, not all opinions matter. Like, in fact, I don't think opinions matter at all, to be perfectly honest, but I'm a very hardline materialist in that sense. But, like, in the online world, that is kind of, that is the reality. And so, therefore, these hyper-individualistic, um, bigoted ideologies thrive because it's sort of, it's almost like designed for them in a way because that's what they can, you know, they can gain. And also, you know, the more controversial you are, the more viral that you, whatever you say or do becomes... Um, and so it's very much geared to that. Whereas I think, again, you know, I'm quite sort of a traditional materialist, but I think that the left has always thrived in physical space and physical institutions because that's where you have to work together with people and regardless of their background, regardless of their, I guess, their sex or their race or their gender or their age or, you know, it's the, it's the idea of like a politics of commonality and that like, oh, look, let's build this, uh, you know, this project together, whether it's a social center or a campaign or, you know, exchanging sort of a solidarity with, uh, with one another and communities. There's a, I think there's something very human about, about that. And that's what the left has traditionally, I guess, tried to encourage and inspire in people. Yeah. I have my own kind of thoughts about 
the way the way people talk about leftist politics or progressive politics mm-hmm. as it's commonly referred to now, that that's also changing. That and that this is related somewhat, I guess, to our becoming more data selves than physical selves. Yes. In that, so it becomes more individualized and less focused on material realities. And so you get these political issues that are about representation in media that are about you know the words we use it mm. you know and notions of identity um mm-hmm. the validity of identity and things like that and um that these become uh, big focuses while a lot of the material reality and the material gains that have been won are mm. sort of chipped away and of course climate change is a ultimate material threat mm. and and yet so much of uh what you know would be described as leftist politics is just about these really theoretical ideas and I think that has a lot to do with our disembodied selves in yeah. online communication. Yeah, I think yeah, um, disembodiment is such is such a, a, a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, I, I remember uh, interviewing uh, someone about this not that long ago um, who was talking about embodiment as, as a sort of uh, a left-wing principle or a radical left-wing principle and that like when you're embodied in yourself and in your community you're more inspired to you know to work collectively with people and then the more you become atomized from yourself whether that's through you know uh, wage labor what's fundamentally an alienating process or through consumption or now through new media the more you become disembodied the more you lose touch with that with community with your humanity in a sense um and it's funny because it's almost sort of um ontologically sort of like a spiritual thing arcs back to that that sort of that idea of of sort of embodiment um but yeah i think i used to think i guess that it was perhaps just a, a phenomenon of affluence or privilege to some extent but um, i mean a lot of my research has been done in places like yogyakarta and in these sort of diy art collectives and you know indonesia for instance is one of the largest users of social media in the world you know they've got more whatsapp users than anywhere else and yeah unfortunately the things that we're experiencing are very much still experiencing experiencing places you know because you kind of i guess it's like a you know sort of anarchist or whatever i sort of hope like oh maybe there's still parts of the world where like people don't have as much time on their hands they're not as affluent and maybe they're still working together and they're not just all chatting to each other on whatsapp and facebook but unfortunately my experience is not it's not the case. Um, but I, I, yeah, I do, I don't know, you kind of hope that people get a, a level of fatigue at some point as well. But I do, yeah, just, I think we're just not even, we're not even conscious of what, what happens to us when we're, when we're on these platforms and what happens to us in terms of the disembodiment. And like you said, like this is such a, there's a, it becomes an absurdity. It becomes an absurdity in terms of what we focus on. Um, I mean, we saw that with these really important movements, such as like the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, that, you know, when it took off here in Australia, you know, that there's so much uh, racial injustice in Australia, particularly when it comes to, you know, our First Nations people. Um, but so much of that gets lost, you know, that, you know, we, we should be really sort of pushing for campaigns around ending de- deaths in custody and closing the gap in... in I think like abolishing native title and actually introducing, you know, forms of uh, proper sovereignty and um, self-determination and these, but like a lot of it always comes back to like, oh, we just need, you know, more indigenous people on TV or more indigenous people in parliament or like, it's just, it's just, 
not a material change. And I don't think fundamentally, even if people get excited about it when they see it, you know, like it doesn't actually change their lives. It's like when a couple of friends would always joke when Obama was elected and, you know, ended up what using more drones and bombing more people than even Bush did. And you think, well, like I'm sure the people in Iraq and Afghanistan were like happy that the president sending the bombs to blow up their villages was a person of color. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a joke, you know, like it's the largest empire in the world and people are celebrating that he's a person. It's just, but that's, I think that is so much tied into surveillance capitalism, platform capitalism and what we consider to be important now because we live very, we live these very disembodied representational lives and we're not so grounded in our actual physical communities. We're not really working with our neighbours or, our, you know, in our local groups and a lot of the civic spaces that traditionally were like these hubs of sort of um, progressive or left-wing politics, a lot of them have just disappeared and the vacuum has been filled by platform capitalism. Mm. I guess that process continues with the metaverse Mm. um, and it's bizarre the metaverse is so obviously in the interests of big tech, you know, it's a Mm. universe that they control and... um, it's hard to, I don't know that people even really want to metaverse, but the media hype around it is relentless and it seems inevitable that this thing, mm-hmm. that we're going to be forced into the metaverse just because of the power of these uh, corporations. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's uh, You often think, I mean, and again, this is, it's ironic because I'm very much a product of this reality as well. So when this, this stuff happens, you know, you kind of think of like uh, the Tyrell Corporation and Blade Runner and it's it's yeah and again it's almost proving my point that it's it's like these think this these this insane you know like these insane corporations that have so much control um, and that are basically mediating our our lives and every aspect of our lives you know from like how we date people to the food we consume to how we go everywhere you know it's all in like how we communicate and how we organize ourselves it's all you know slowly being uh, you know controlled and owned by these few corporations and yet then you you just think oh it's just like uh, the Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner or oh, that's just <laughs> like it's 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 and that sort of proves the point and like and then it becomes less real in a, in a strange way but um yeah I, I don't know I don't I don't know if there's a growing awareness around it it's a bit like um I mean different to the, the metaverse stuff but it's a bit like I think um the influencing control like uh corporations like Monsanto have, have you know and it's just, it's just, it doesn't get talked about. But again, I think, I wonder to what extent it doesn't get talked about because we're also preoccupied with, with being on these platforms. And, and I, th- I think just like, I guess going back, because we, we haven't really talked about some of the um, potential, like really serious, um, you know, outside of the more abstract psychological, social ramifications of these platforms, the real like immediate impacts on social movements and activists. And I think, you know, one of the important, things to look at is you know like arab spring and some of these movements that were some of the first to use these platforms and they're organizing um and they'll you know there were a lot of like western commentators at the time that sort of almost perpetuated quite a kind of um uh, like a colonial eurocentric um myth by saying that like these platforms kind of aided or even brought freedom to these places like you know in, in egypt or elsewhere and during the arab spring but, you know, that if people actually followed up what happened, a lot of these governments, then, you know, people were using Facebook and Twitter and, and so forth to organize. 
and then the the regimes would just be turning to the these platforms for all the all the contact information and networks and arresting people and then just using them as these tools of surveillance and control you know historically um the secret police and the state would have to torture activists for the kind of information we now willingly give them on a daily basis and hand them on a silver platter you know you always thought we're putting out putting the secret police out of work really because we're basically doing their job for them (laughs) we've talked a lot about i guess online discourse and culture and things like that but the other side of your both your phd study and um your political praxis is talking about radical social centers and um there's something you're trying to start one here in Fremantle and I guess what's the virtue of a radical social center in a world of online dominated community so I I think you know again I'm you know I'm materialist I think it's important to create physical infrastructure and and spaces um and I guess I come from like politically a tradition of valuing and believing in the creation of prefigurative institutions um and to briefly explain what that means it's essentially i guess there's largely a shift in the in the late 20th century away from the idea that we just need to overthrow the state and um and then everything you know everything will be great we'll have a social revolution there'll be a, you know a communist utopia and so forth and there's a shift towards um i guess what people call sort of post-leftist or a post-marxist uh, thinking where there was this idea of creating um, institutions that embody the the principles and beliefs and values that we would like to see in a you know in an alternate society. So rather than waiting for that one glorious revolutionary moment where everyone's suddenly free and and liberated, that we start to create these things now. But it's not. It's actually you know the, the, these politics arc back even further. So you can look at for instance, um, into what's referred to as the Summer of Anarchy in, in, um, in parts of Spain, probably around Barcelona in, the, in 1936 and 37, I believe, like the, for that period of time where there was, you know, one, some three million um, anarchists that created these, uh, you know, participatory direct democracy spaces where they worked together and, you know, cultivating the land and also... Uh, in, in fighting the fascists and, and dealing with the the Republicans and, and the Stalinists, but it, yeah, I think it's really important for us in in our in our own lives and if people with radical politics to actually have spaces and microcosms in which we can experiment with participatory forms of governance and you know mutual aid and solidarity and historically you know we don't have it so much in Australia, but that's what social centres have been. So you know you have the whole occupied social centre movement in Europe and the autonomous movements that came out of the, the, the sort of squatter movements in, in Amsterdam and, and elsewhere in the sort of 70s through the 2000s where people would occupy places and set up these intentional communities and these, you know, run schools and English classes and soup kitchens and, you know, shelter and, and, and you know, lots of, I guess, sort of social projects, but um, all collectively organised um, and with a focus on, yeah, this sort of, mutual aid and direct democracy and so forth. So I, th- I think it's really important. And I, I mean, I, you know, you don't want to overstate the importance, but I think in terms of looking at a potential antidote to the alienation and atomization and spectacle of online platforms, I think, um, you know, collaborative physical institutions um, like social centers might offer some alternative because it gives us an opportunity to 
not only be more embodied in ourselves and in our community, but actually to really physically work with people in creating, you know, more free and democratic, inclusive structures and spaces. Mm. Yeah, and it is, it's putting those politics into practice, you know, mm. in, a, in physical communities that are yeah. measurable by the people there, but also in spaces, you know, that do embody these beliefs, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's not, I think, I think a lot of us, if, if you have radical politics, you have this idea, well, like, well, we're never going to see a, a social revolution, you know, <laughs> especially um, if, if the older you get and the more cynical you get and the more insane things become, you know, especially, you know, like with the dominance of, you know, the, the, these kind of like corporate hegemonies that we've been talking about, it's very hard to imagine, you know, like an actual, um, any kind of revolutionary moment in our lifetime, but at the very least, if when creating these spaces, we can experiment and experience, um, you know, even on a much smaller scale, the kinds of things we want to, you know, that we're striving for, for, for the world. But, and then also outside of that, it creates incredibly valuable infrastructure for campaigns and for sort of, I guess, groups that need, need support, so whether they be um, you know, minority group or, or, or whatever, you know, I think, I think it's, you know, and even looking, going back to where we started with indie media, that was another significant thing about indie media. It wasn't just about individuals finding out information, sharing information. It's about all the infrastructure that was created. It was like the list servers, you know, that were created to support campaign groups and, and social movements and so forth. So I think having, having spaces, they're sort of, you know, twofold and it's a space to you know, experiment with radical politics and to, you know, engage with our community. And it's, it's sort of healthy for us in that sense, but then also provides really necessary infrastructure for social movements, for environmental campaigns or social campaigns or economic campaigns, you know, have a space that's freely accessible and people can meet there, have shared resources, tool libraries, that kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, beneficial in both senses. All right, well, there's much more we could talk about, but I think we're out of time. Thanks very much, Ray. Yeah. No, thanks, Andy. That was great. I hope you enjoyed the chat I had with Ray Grenfell over the show. It was interesting finishing up talking about the need for uh, building prefigurative political spaces that kind of live out the future that we hope to see um, because 4ZZZ is one of them, you know, and it was the hard work of people living in the middle of Joe Bjelke Peterson's Queensland who saw the importance of independent media, but also of spaces where people could gather. And it is a space where lots of different people work together on a shared goal, which again um, is something that builds commonality, but also builds power, you know, our, our belief in our own ability to do things. And I think that's one of the things where we talk about the alienation of um, social media, everybody sitting alone behind their screens, but also where your only contribution to things is your opinion, you know? Um, it doesn't build power. It doesn't build a, a sense of change in what's possible, uh, which is what radical politics should do, you know? It should be things that shift our understandings of what the world can be like, that we've been given a world that looks like one thing, but it's not the only possibility. And as we get in and 
do the the praxis of trying to build these alternative institutions. We learn different things about ourselves that we didn't know. We learn different things about our communities and what they're capable of. And all of a sudden, the world, which had seemed so monolithic and kind of overwhelming, becomes a bit more malleable. And we start to think, actually, maybe we can change a few things. And so I encourage you to get out there, get involved in groups that uh, share your beliefs or that have projects that are worth working on. There's so many in Brisbane and all over the place. And maybe start up some of your own. Talk about your friends. What can we do? What do we need to do? And maybe also talk about, hey, how do these uh, social media platforms affect us? As we've said today, it's so often, it just doesn't get talked about very much and we live it every single day, the reality of life in techno-capitalism and, um, of course, as the technology increases, these things are going to increase more and more. So anyway, I intend to keep talking about these things on the Paradigm Shift and we'll be back next week with more information to empower and inspire you to go out and make a better world. I'll see you next week.